what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 147. Today, we are going to be jumping back into true crime mode here, and we are going to be looking at the mysterious deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. This is an older case that doesn't have too much coverage, I would say. Not really. Pretty minimal. It's been a long time since it's even been talked about in the media. Yeah. Originally on Unsolved Mysteries season one. The old So a while ago. Yeah. But it's still unsolved to this day. It's a very interesting case. I think we have a lot of interesting things to add to it. Mm -hmm. uh, Interesting case and we've got interesting things to say. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So (laughs) get ready for that. But before we get into that, we do have a couple of news topics to go over. Some interesting updates, especially on Joe Exotic. We have talked a lot about Tiger King and Joe Exotic on the show. We've done an episode on it. You dressed as the man himself for Halloween. Maybe we can I get a became clip. Joe Exotic iconic. for Halloween. Yeah, you did. You were. You were Joe. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes, but some some kind of bad news for Joe, our boy. Well, as you guys know, you know there was an inauguration here in America, new president. But the day before, you know, on on our last president's last day, he decided to pardon a bunch of people, and. Joe Exotic was one of those people that he was hoping on would Trump's be pardoned. Last day. Exactly. Said our last president's last day. You don't even want to say his name. <laughs> I'm <Trump>. trying to forget <laughs> and Me move too. on. Uh, I feel that way too. But yeah, Joe Exotic was hoping. I mean, he's been. I guess I don't really know his whole affiliation with with uh, Donald Trump, but I know that it's kind of funny. Uh, Jeff Lowe, the guy who took over his zoo after he went to jail, mm-hmm. he said in an interview or something that. Joe Exotic got thrown out of a Trump event in 2016, like kicking and screaming. Oh. Like he had wow. this big like outburst at a Trump event. But Damn. but apparently Joe Exotic like wrote letters and mm-hmm. everything t- begging Donald Trump to <laughs> pardon him. And mm-hmm. his legal team, you know, this day before the inauguration said we're 100 <laughs> percent confident that Joe Exotic's going to get pardoned so much so that he yeah. bought himself a limo, a stretch limo to pick him up. From jail. A big ass limo. Can we get a clip? Mm-hmm. We want to thank President Trump in advance for his signature. It's going to make the day great. Right the wrong. This will be the truck for freedom. For freedom. The truck for freedom. <laughs> oh my God. The to fringe. Ouch. That is. He's never going to financially recover from that. Financially. <laughs> so confident, man. Dude. Absolutely. So confident. And I mean, Donald That's Trump did give out. Oh, imagine I know. waiting for that. He's like, oh, can you imagine how let down you'd be? He's not doing well in prison. Oh, I'm sure he's not. He's I'm not. Sure he's not. He's pissed. Everything's gone really to shit since Tiger King came out for him. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. Really has. His world fell apart. And burned to the ground. Do you think he deserves it, though? Do you think that's karma? Absolutely. I do he agree. absolutely deserves to be in prison. And I would be very upset mm-hmm. if Trump did pardon his I ass because he's done some fucked up shit and he, he needs has. to pay the price for his yep. his decisions. I Animal mean, cruelty is serious and everything else he's been involved in, too. Yeah. And he literally did a murder for hire plot yeah, to kill yeah, Carol Baskins. Too, like, the reason I'm most happy is locked. I mean, it pisses me off how he treated those animals. The animal abuse is ridiculous. It was disgusting. So Trump gave out a bunch of pardons. And lo and behold, Joe Exotic was not one of the people that received one. Because it sounded like before that he was going to have a lot more. It sounded like, you know, the media yeah, was like, Yeah, they were pumping course. it up like it's going to be like yeah. hundreds of people being mm. pardoned. And it, it was a lot less. Than we Way less. Mm-hmm. And so Joe Exotic was very angry. <laughs> 
Okay. Apparently tweeting from jail, which I guess they probably get internet access. So he can yeah. log on to his Twitter and from jail or maybe or he somebody can, tweeted for him. Yeah. I was going to say, or he like on the phone said this and said, tweet exactly this. He says, I was too innocent and too gay to deserve a pardon from Trump. I only mattered to Don Jr. When he needed to make a comment about me to boost his social media post. Boy, we're all stupid to believe he actually stood for equal justice. His corrupt friends all come first. Honestly, he's got a point there. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he definitely just pardoned now people worse than this? him. Yeah, and he's like pardoning rappers, Lil Wayne, Kodak Black. Like that was so random. I feel like the fact that I feel like he was just yeah. going for cool points there. Maybe I don't know much much about even why they were being pardoned. To be honest, so I don't really know. But a lot of people were really upset that he didn't pardon Julian Assange or or any of those people. Like he could have. Yeah. Like a lot of people are saying that he could have pardoned some people that would have been huge news and like really would have been a bold, you know, a bold action, whether or not you believe Julian Assange should be in, you know, exiled basically or not, you know, it would be pretty bold to like wipe all that off and allow Julian Assange to come back, you know, to the United States. I Mm -hmm. mean, a lot of people are thinking he would do something bold like that, but instead he left the white house with tail between his legs and who knows what he's doing now so yeah honestly who knows we don't hear much from him these days but anyway we just thought it was interesting that joe exotic was was uh, one of those people that thought he was going to get pardoned and said he's going to serve uh the rest of his 22 year prison sentence that's a long ass time damn but yeah well deserved it's crazy that like a president can even just pardon somebody i know i was thinking about that your it's crazy they can even pardon themselves there was some talk that he might pardon himself for a while did that ever? I didn't even know that was a thing that you could just do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy power. Seriously, and then there's likely people on death row that didn't deserve to be there yeah. who were executed in the final yep. days of Dustin the last Higgs administration. Was especially heartbreaking to see. I mean, so many have come from his administration. They have a lot of blood on their hands. But I think we're headed down a much brighter path now, and we just started the age of Aquarius. So yeah. there there's knows. a light at the end of the tunnel. I am. I agree. I feel the and same way. You know, the past four years, we felt like we've been in reverse a little bit in that tunnel, you know, yeah. or even at just a standstill. It's been and I think chaotic. we're going to start accelerating forward. I mean, I think things are going to, you know, obviously with the pandemic and everything, it's been just crazy. And I think we're still probably many months off from it being completely normal again. Four but years, yeah. Yeah. But I think that normal again, yeah, probably years. I mean, just like around us, like restaurants are back open to 25%, like they're inching towards opening back up to full capacity and stuff. So like we're, yeah, we're heading in the right direction. It's just going to have major effects for long, long, I mean, years to come. And also I think it's kind of propelling us into the future, having to deal with like sometimes things have to get worse before they do get better and we create new solutions that make more sense. Like just the amount of jobs that are going to change and how we operate as a society is going to change because of this and i'm curious to see if it ends up being in a good way or i think it's going to be in a good way it's just hard to see it while you're in it you know yeah well while you're in it i mean it's hard to see anything but i think that we're already seeing how life just in itself is going to change i think Mm -hmm. public health will hopefully improve because we're all much more aware of germs and Mm -hmm. washing hands and hand sanitizer and stuff like that's been ingrained into our our minds at this point that Mm -hmm. after this is all over, we'll probably hopefully continue to do that. And, you know, to some extent, but also just like how all the things that we enjoyed in life are going to be 
you know, altered and how technology is, is now having to kind of go into a faster development rate so that it can match where society's headed. Because I think society took like a hard left turn yeah. And we're now, you know, we're never going to go back onto that exact same path we were on before. We've kind of taken, you know, a detour, a detour and the detour is going to take us to the future. But the future is just going to look a lot different than what it would have looked like had the pandemic not happened at all. Yeah. So like specifically thinking about what outdoor, you know, or concerts are going to look like, mm-hmm. you know, how is that going to be and how is that going to change, you know, all of the venues and stuff and how they do business? I mean, the entire economy has been absolutely changed based on this pandemic because everybody's had to change how they've always done things Mm -hmm. when it comes to manufacturing or all types of service jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever industry you're in, it's impacted everything. And that's, what's crazy about this whole global health crisis is just how much it's actually affected every single thing on this planet, especially cities that really rely on tourism. That's been huge, you know, and, like New York, for example, traveling is at like 25% of where right, it for was. tourism and stuff. Yeah. Right. So think about how much that impacts the economy, right. the amount of revenue that's being lost as a result of mm-hmm. them having to decrease the amount of people that you can put through anything. I mean, any mm-hmm. sort of tourist attraction, theme parks, mm-hmm. I mean, you name it, it's all changed. Yeah. I wonder how different things like will be, you know, years from now, just based on a pandemic. You know, as, yeah. as simple as going to a zoo or like. Right. Well, I know, think that's where technology theater. is really going to change the game for us. And I think the the new wave of technology we're going to see is we're going to see technology that is self-cleaning, that is going to help prevent a spread of a virus again. Because hopefully, you know, we've learned our lesson from this pandemic. Being so unprepared. Right. Being unprepared and then also, you know, not having the tools to combat it. You know, it seems like so antiquated that we're in 2021 now and yet we're still like fighting a virus basically the same way we would fight it 100 years ago. Well, <laughs> kind of. Right. Yeah. Kind of. I but see what I'm, you're saying. But you it hasn't it, changed that much. It hasn't changed that much. Right. And yet technology is we'll all around really us. Maybe we'll take it up a notch after this. Yeah. Right. We got Elon Musk talking about going to Mars and colonizing Mars. I mean, oh, we have boy. so many things I that I really are, hope he does not. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. No, I know. But I'm just saying that like all the technology is being used for other things that are rapidly advancing yet. It feels like health wise, it's mm-hmm. a much slower rate. So hopefully we see that increase and in like everything's got UV light built into mm-hmm. it. That's like automatically, you know, handles on doors of major attractions or, mm-hmm. you know, just public places have some type of self cleaning thing on it too. And, and just like, even this isn't really, any new technology but just having hand sanitizer dispensers like everywhere is so nice like walking into a store now and there's normally hand sanitizer there for you or yeah you know at theme parks and stuff they're gonna have that when you get off rides you know wipe down things i think our mindsets are just gonna change we're a lot more aware now right you know yeah exactly so a lot of the things i did before this i'm like god that was fucking gross <laughs> oh yeah there's so you many know? times where you go like shopping and then you go to the food court sit down and eat and not even wash your hands or, yeah. or like or like put sanitizer bowling on. yeah bowling how disgusting Ew. is that and then you normally eat during it <laughs> mm, you're like those, licking mm, your fingers nacho cheese and then stick them back in the ball <laughs> yeah. all right mom here you go like touching that meanwhile kids are like you know Oh. Putting their fingers all over. Oh, Kids yeah. are the all nastiest over. little jungle gyms and shit. Like oh, McDonald's yeah. play places. Oh yeah, I would like lick the side of those when I was a kid. Ew, sick. <laughs> Even now, menus freak me the fuck out. Like 
like mm-hmm. in the past, you know, however many months, if I've gone out to eat, I'll touch a menu and I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I know. Or like normally they don't really have me- menus. Normally you're just scanning a QR yeah, now, thing, right? which is so smart. I'm like, will we ever go back to having menus? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Menus is, would probably be phased out. They should be. Are many of these daily things that we you know, did before the pandemic, will they actually return to that after it's over? Or so. will all, all of this just have adopted this new way of life and that's just how we'll continue on forever? Mm-hmm. I think the majority of us will adopt the new thinking. And we're just going to be more aware of how dirty everything is. It's very dirty out there. (laughs) It is. It is very dirty. And I used to like see people wearing masks on planes and I'd be like, oh, like that seems kind of like overkill unless I mean, of course, some people have health issues and I knew that too. But now I'm like, I don't think I'll ever travel without a mask or like be in the airport, you know, like now it just seems smart to wear one. Yeah. Or you go to a crowded concert hall you know and you're packed in there i mean sometimes i guess you're just protecting everyone else not really yourself well i mean if you wore an n95 mask as a filter like there's actual ones that would be so annoying to wear that would be did you uh, let's be real here that's so true so like i I think the mask thing is going to be around for a long time because companies are are continuing to develop uh new types of masks one of them that is is pretty cool is this mask developed by a company called razor they make actually oh yeah i saw that uh, gaming hardware they're developing something called project hazel and it's essentially the world's smartest mask it's really cool Whoa. like they're Whoa. very fashionable they're clear like the clear mass so you can actually see people's face but the cool thing about it is it's actually going to has a microphone in it so it's going to project your voice out of your mask mm-hmm. for oh. you because sometimes like yeah. those cloth masks, can't I mean, hear. can't I hear shit. You're like, rah, rah, like yelling yeah. and like, can't hear And then you. people end up just taking their mask down to talk. I'm like, that's right. really helpful. <laughs> really I know. I see people doing that like while they're on their phones all the time because you can't, you feel like someone can't hear you if you talk yeah. to them on. I've, I've done that too, or you're like feeling like you have to scream through your right. mask. Or just ordering food. Like when you're at like Chipotle oh, yeah. or something, right. and you're trying to talk and they're like, yeah, can't or you hear can't you. hear them, and yeah. you're like, "Sorry, I have to ask you like the, for the third time. What did you say?" Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. You don't realize how much you rely on reading lips either until you don't have them. You know, seriously, whole new world, whole yes. new world we're in. It is. It's pretty wild times, but interesting. It Life's interesting. been interesting. That's one thing we can probably all say. You know, it's been pretty stressful, but it's been. It's like a movie. The last Something couple when we're years, old, we'll talk about. I feel like we'll yeah. all sit back and like you guys Feels remember like we're really living history. It is. It'll be, be written like about that. in history books. Like yep. we'll be sitting when we're old talking about the 2020 pandemic mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how crazy that time was. Yep. Yep. Lockdown. I, oh, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> it's very crazy. So the next little update that we've got for you is on a story we've been kind of covering over the last couple of weeks. And that is this unknown person who has a jetpack that's flying around restricted airspace that pilots are reporting uh, seeing. And we have no idea who it is. It's John Dieter. <laughs> yeah, right. Speaking of John Teeter, somebody brought up that we should go back and look at his predictions. There's some more oh. predictions out there. He's Oh, yeah. He had a lot of them. For 2021, even. Interesting. Maybe we should take a little look, skis. Mm. Maybe we should. But anyways, the jetpack whole phenomenon might actually just be a drone. Mm. Some people think that there is uh, that whoever is actually flying is not a person at all. It's just this drone, basically an inflatable jetpack wearing dummy. Because if you oh. take a look at this video, it looks pretty convincing. Stop. That's funny as fuck if that's true. 
because apparently uh, one of the pilots that saw that actually reported the sighting of this jetpack dude after watching this video which has like seven and a half million views of this, this sounds like pointless just this rc oh, <laughs> oh my god that they think this is what it is <laughs> and it was someone was just flying that around yes. in the airport <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're oh all like who's this god. mystery man and he's like it looked exactly like this we were like it's a time traveler maybe <laughs> nope <laughs> Just some person who has. I don't know an if RC. they really think it's this guy or something like this, because this guy's from Germany. I'm pretty sure. So okay. I don't know if this was his thing or if they like showed that this exists. And oh, because like, this oh, guy just probably... built it. But you can buy this. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah. So I don't know if it's this guy. No, right, it's this not this guy. German RC enthusiast named had built this himself. Yeah. So this Look is like this is a custom thing. It's not something you can buy. <laughs> so funny, man. So unless this guy made him one, it wouldn't be the same one. But just maybe like, it is something like that. Why? That looks hilarious. It looks pretty real, honestly. It does, except he's so rigid. But yeah, it would be hard to tell from far away. Right. If you're a pilot flying a plane. Wouldn't your legs like be flopping around more? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. But that's a possible solution. I hope it's not that, though. I hope it's a time traveler. (laughs) It's more fun. So we will keep you guys updated if there is any more information on mystery jetpack dude. (laughs) Okay, before we get into our case today, which is very, very interesting, um, we have to go into our first commercial break, and we will be right back. So today's case takes place in Bryant, Arkansas, in a suburb of Little Rock, and we're going to be talking about Larry Kevin Ives and Donald George Henry, who are best friends and very popular. And Larry also went by, or most of the time went by Kevin. Yes. So we will be referring to him as Kevin in this podcast. So, like I said, they were very popular boys. They were about to start their senior year of high school. So, this is a very exciting time in your life. And this case takes place in the 80s. So, of course, they liked working on their muscle cars in their spare time. They also enjoyed hunting and going out with friends and on double dates with their girlfriends. So, Don was known as the funny one in the friendship. He was always cracking jokes, trying to make Kevin laugh. And they were just normal teens in the 80s. There's not that much information on them out there. Just so you guys know, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. really not a whole lot. So, yeah. So we're going to be starting pretty much with Saturday night, August 22nd, 1987. And they had met a group of friends outside of Little Rock at a parking lot where they all like to hang out. They left the group around midnight and drove to Don's house for their curfew. They planned to spend the night there. So Don had to ask his dad, Curtis, if he could go. So Kevin waited on the porch while Don went in to talk to his dad. Curtis was in the bedroom when Don came in, and he asked if he could go hunting in the woods near their house. They talked about it for 15 minutes, and Curtis told them that they could go, but to be careful. So Don left with his dad's spotlight and his 22 caliber rifle. So they were going to be spotlighting. What does that mean? I don't know anything about hunting. It's basically a, an illegal form of hunting in Arkansas. Where it's illegal. You, yeah, it's illegal. Oh. You can't go out at night and you can't use spotlights to basically scare animals. So what you do is you, you find an animal, mm. a deer or rabbit or something, and you oh. shine a light, bright spotlight at it so it kind of freezes, and then you shoot it oh, that's while terrible. it's just sitting there. So obviously, yeah, yeah, it's kind of frowned upon. But Is it illegal or frowned upon? Uh, it's illegal in Arkansas. I mean, oh, I okay. don't know if it's illegal everywhere. I mean, I'm and not this a, was in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. So could be different i just know that that's yeah you're not supposed to do that but spotlighting was a popular thing for the local boys in this area to do and so far don and kevin had never been caught so they decided they were going to just you know go ahead and do it again like normal it was so normal to them in fact that curtis didn't give a second thought he never thought that the boys would get into trouble hunting 
So they normally hunted along the railroad tracks near Don's house, and they got to their usual spot shortly before 1 a.m. And they were out there for hours. Is that common to hunt in the middle of the night for hours? I feel like you'd be so tired. I mean, some people do it. Yeah. It's mm. not totally uncommon for people to go hunting at night. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for, you know, two teenage guys to go out and hunt around the railroad tracks, which, you know, it's never a really good idea to go rolling down the railroad tracks. You never know mm-hmm. when a train might be coming. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Around 425 a.m., a 6,000 ton cargo train going over 50 miles an hour was on its usual night run through Saline County to Little Rock. Again, a lot of these small towns uh, are run along the railroad tracks. I mean, it's pretty common. I, I would live in a small town that actually had the railroad going right through it, and it was just on a schedule, and you know, you always heard it roll through. Yep. When we lived in Greeley, we experienced mm-hmm. that too. Greeley as well. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. So it was just something that happened on the regular. But the train that actually ran through the town that night had 75 cars and was over a mile long. Huge, huge freight train. The engineer of this train at the time was Stephen Schroyer, and there was also three other workers on the train that could see the tracks up ahead. The farther and farther they kept traveling, Stephen noticed something was on the tracks, and he was absolutely shocked to realize what it was. As they got close enough, he realized that he saw bodies laying across the railroad tracks like corpses in a morgue. Their legs were straight out with their arms at their sides, and their lower bodies were covered by a light green tarp, according to him. And all four men on the train who had the view of the boys also saw this particular tarp because this tarp comes back Mm -hmm. later on. Uh, There's some controversy with it. But Stephen immediately attempted to do an emergency stop and blew the diesel horn multiple times uh, to alert. I mean, if Mm -hmm. they happened to be alive, which it didn't look like they were to get out of the way, you know. How scary would that be? Seriously. Like, oh, someone's life is literally in your hands and you have to stop a train. You can't. No. You really can't. He estimated that there were about three to five seconds to impact in the way the train carried Mm. it for a full half mile. Literally takes half a mile for it to even stop. Mm -hmm. And obviously the horn of the train is extremely loud, so Mm -hmm. much so that it's literally in that pain threshold for human ears to experience pain when they hear it. Yeah. And so they were hoping that whatever, you know, these people were doing on the tracks would get out of the way in time. But unfortunately, the bodies never moved. There is no reaction from it. There is not even a flinch of activity coming from them at all. And sadly, the train ran right over them. That's so scary. And sadly, the two bodies that were on the train tracks were none other than 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives, uh, who passed away on August 23rd, 1987. And this case has kind of been named the boys on the tracks. Like if you Mm -hmm. look it up, that's kind of what it's under. And that's because these two boys literally died on the railroad tracks. But Steven, the train engineer called the police afterwards on the radio and told them what had happened. He told them to expect death when they arrived. The bodies were obviously extremely mangled and dismembered from the impact of the train. I mean, literally having a train run right over a body is not going to be a good scene at all. Don's 22 caliber rifle was lying parallel next to them and the spotlight they used to hunt was also nearby. The men on the train obviously had experience hitting animals, and all of them happened to be hunters as well. And if the boys had been killed by the train, there should have been bright red blood splattered everywhere, but the blood that they saw was thick and purplish in color, which indicated that Mm -hmm. it seemed like the boys had actually been dead for some time prior to being hit by the train. And that obviously lines up well with Stevens explanation that they were just laying there and they're honking the horn and they didn't move clearly 
visibly they alive right visibly they were already deceased mm-hmm. but i mean just the blood evidence there really does prove that mm-hmm. these guys were dead for at least some time prior to the train's impact mm-hmm. Because at first you might think, you know, maybe a suicide. Is this like a suicide pact? I know that's what a lot of people will think. But, I mean, it doesn't even make sense forensically for that to have been possible. No, it doesn't. And we'll talk about that more here in a second. So, Saline County Sheriff's deputies responded to the scene and were there within minutes. And the witnesses told officers what had happened, including their observation of the blood, the fact that they had seen a green tarp over the mm-hmm. boys, and just the mere fact that the boys hadn't flinched at all. I mean, if they were alive and just laying on the railroad tracks, you'd think they'd hear a train coming and move out of the way. I mean, how often do you hear stories of people laying on railroad tracks being run over or even suicide attempts of people being run over by trains? I mean, it's very, very rare. I feel like I don't have statistics on that, but it's, I know it's rare. It's a rare occasion that people are actually run over by trains. People get hit by trains. Vehicles get hit by trains, but people laying on railroad tracks does not happen that often. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, you would hear that's a very traumatic yeah. death period. Like you would hear about well, like, that. If you were going to take your life, why would you want to do that? Exactly. That's yeah. like that's terrifying a horrible way for not only you, but also the people that find you. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it's definitely been done plenty of times. Oh, it's been sure, done. It's, yeah. yeah. But so despite the officers who arrived on the scene, getting all this information from the witnesses about the blood, the tarp and all of that, the officers did not even that didn't like register with them because they treated the scene like an accident. They didn't even or suicide. They didn't look at it as a possible murder at all. Mm-mm. I mean, which is kind of wild to think about. You would think that a police officer would at least have enough knowledge about, you know, blood mm-hmm. and decomposition that they would know that, you know, maybe there's a chance that this right? could be murder. Isn't maybe that kind of like could a have placed them classic there. murder plot? Like, people like in the old days there would be movies that they would tie someone up on a train yeah, track right you know it's kind of like why i mean why would they even consider that especially because there's two boys right what are the chances that two boys decide to commit suicide or it's two boys that have an accident that doesn't make a lot of sense you'd think just that alone would make them yeah and they were laying it. side by side with their arms down to their like yeah their sides like it looks so like clearly set up that way right Uh, But evidence wasn't collected and the next train was allowed to just come right through. Right. So there goes all your evidence, all your possible DNA. I mean, that's going to be all contaminated and completely gone. That is unbelievable. How did that even happen? I don't understand. I mean, it was also the 80s. I mean, as we know from all these other cases we've covered that police work, especially in small towns during the 80s and, you know, prior times is just was sloppy a lot of mm-hmm. the times and just police officers didn't have the skills or knowledge to actually the knowledge accurately assess a crime scene. Right. Yeah. I mean, but the paramedics that arrived on the scene did not believe that it was an accident. They added a note in the file that they believed that the boys were dead before they were hit. And that is so, so crucial. And then the next morning, Don's dad, Curtis discovered the boys weren't home. He immediately freaked out and he called Linda Ives, who's Kevin's mom. And he was checking to see if they were there but they weren't. News of what happened spread quickly through this town. Very small town, of course, and these boys were popular, so everyone found out about this really fast and were very upset. But not everything was accurate either. No. I mean, rumors fly in small towns. Oh, yeah. Well, you lived in one for a small time. I lived in multiple small towns for, you know, a good part of my life, so Mm -hmm. I definitely know how word flies. I mean, Mm -hmm. any of you out there live in a small town, you know word gets around quick when something big like this happens 
And of course, when you don't understand what happened, people are going to just create rumors to right. figure it out, you know, fill the, the holes. Don's dad heard from a neighbor that there were two teenage boys who had been shot, killed, and tied to the railroad tracks. But he, of course, didn't know who they were. But the fact that his kids were missing, I mean, his son and his friend, I'm sure he was it really freaked freaking him out, out. When he heard that. Mm-hmm. So the police arrived to his house shortly after, and Curtis was able to confirm that the two boys who were killed were Don and Kevin. Obviously, after an extremely traumatic event like this, where you know bodies are, are mangled, they're taken to the coroner's office, where they're examined by the medical examiner, and that's exactly what happened with Don and Kevin. So Dr. Fami Malik was the Arkansas state medical examiner at the time, and he ended up ruling the deaths an accident. And he had said, and this is so crazy this is going to blow your mind if you've ever smoked weed but he said that the boys had smoked the equivalent of 20 joints and that's possibly why they were on the train tracks yeah claim that they were intoxicated due to marijuana yep marijuana intoxication causing them both to fall into a drug-induced coma or very deep sleep and that's why they didn't hear the fucking train and never moved okay let's talk about this for a second what in the hell is that first of all there's major holes and how do you know they smoke 20 marijuana right. cigarettes how would you even you can't, know? You can't even that. measure the amount of thc they would consume in order it, it just it the science doesn't work it, no. it doesn't make any sense at all no it's not like alcohol where it's no. like right nothing like alcohol it's like positive or negative only. it's really hard to tell yeah exactly and what your equivalent is um, you know, because their aid, we, we don't know how much weed they smoked on a normal basis either. I mean, how would they have even determined that? You can't because no. there's no, there's still like no way to measure the amount of intoxication of a person because it's different for everybody. Yeah, everyone's cannabinoid system processes it completely differently. So how We're, can you? Right. Exactly. It's probably some old junk science. Well, I mean, marijuana intoxication is a recognized <laughs> medical condition, but it's something that we, in, anybody that smokes weed or hella weed is going to have marijuana intoxication but that doesn't mean yeah it's going to cause a loss of consciousness or even deep sleep a deep sleep where you can't hear a train that is 90 what was it 96 decibels yeah um excuse me no. that would doesn't blow matter you. That would, there's no way you can smoke enough weed to where you just wouldn't hear it because you're sleeping so hard mm-hmm. out on a train track and who i'm sorry but it is maybe if you haven't smoked weed you would buy that but there's no way you're going to smoke some weed and then be like, let me take a nap on the train tracks. Like you still are functioning. Also, I don't even believe that they smoke 20 joints because no. like realistically, you'd probably be so stoned after like a handful that you'd be like, I don't need to do like why yeah. you're not going to be like, let's keep fucking go-. like you would honestly <laughs> yeah. probably like, <laughs> yeah. I don't need like mm-hmm. go off into like a little nap or something before you smoke 20 joints, but not a deep enough sleep to where you don't hear a train coming. No. And, yeah. yeah, and why would you at be, all lay right? Exactly. Why would you be track? in that position? No, it would not alter your brain gonna, to the point yeah. where you would make decisions like that. It just is not accurate. I don't think there's any drug that would cause yeah, what you to do fuck? that to go well, lay down on railroad tracks. Obviously, like if you're on PCP or something, like you yeah, might maybe. do some crazy shit I haven't like tried that. Anything like that, but people do crazy shit on drugs. We're not saying that they don't. It's just with not for marijuana. With marijuana, there's just Mm-mm. absolutely no way that this would cause them to lose consciousness on the railroad tracks side by side in the exact way that a train would run right through them like i think that kind of call would not fly today you know with medical examiners if the same case were to happen now no absolutely absolutely not not. 
Maybe. People are wild you still about so? it. I don't know. Maybe, Maybe in Arkansas, the state. I guess. Yeah, it's, yeah it's exactly. Yeah. I'm sure there's some places in this country still <laughs> that they would like say that. this. Like the only thing that could remotely get you that point is like synthetic marijuana, like some salvia or something. Yeah, maybe. Which is maybe. a man-made chemical. It's not yeah. natural at all. And, not the plant. But that wasn't even manufactured till the early 2000s. So they weren't on that. They were just smoking pure Mary Jane. And mm-hmm. even if, the, I mean, what do they find? 20 marijuana cigarette butts? Like how'd they yeah. even know that it was 20? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. There's no, and if like, they did, they would have had that documented. You know so, what this is? This is just the medical examiner who's trying to make sense of the scene. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, these two boys, you know, or they, you know, they had THC in their system when mm-hmm. they did a drug test or drug screen or whatever. And they're like, oh, it must have been that then. Or maybe they have pressure from the police to to go a certain way, especially because they fucked up the crime scene so bad. They're like, if it is a crime, rule it an we're accident. Not, we're going to look bad. That's maybe. terrible. That's absolutely terrible. And even their friends that they were hanging out earlier that night said that they might've had a joint on them, but not much more than that. Like they weren't, there wasn't like they were rolling around pounds of weed. They planned to like, or a bunch of concentrate that they were going to like do, but that night, you know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. like that was in the plans to do in the first place. They were going to go hunting. Like they always did. They were doing a perfectly normal thing. So their parents were like, so confused by this medical examiner's ruling on, on their, their case. Plus, according to Kevin's father, Larry Ives, he was always home when Kevin got home from school and he never showed any signs of, you know, using substances or anything like that. And his mother, Linda, was home every night as well. And she said the same thing. They were not aware at all that their children were uh, or that their child was consuming marijuana. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of parents that aren't aware of their children consuming marijuana, but. I mean, if you really, I guess the point is, is if they were actually doing serious drugs or doing a mass amounts of something, then there probably would have been more evidence that they would have seen or other incidents mm-hmm. like this. I mean, what's the chances that the first time that they, you know, get marijuana intoxicated, they end up on the railroad tracks. Like no. if this was an actual problem that they had, they would have done that at school or wherever at like multiple yeah. places. No. Like the fact that nobody's like putting this together, uh, at least on law enforcement side and the medical examiner's office is just crazy because Linda also didn't understand how the boys ended up in identical positions lying perfectly parallel on the tracks. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. No. And plus a train's horn is so fucking loud. It's like a jackhammer, a jet taking off. I mean, it's, it's extremely mm-hmm. loud. It rocks an entire community. Like you can yeah. be a mile away and still hear the yeah. train. Like, I was going to say, we lived about a mile away from the train and it used to still wake me up sometimes. Yeah. They're loud as fuck. They are. So the families did not believe that the boys would just be taking a nap from smoking some weed when a loud noise was like that. Plus those railroad tracks would be shaken. Mm-hmm. Like the motion from a train like oh, that yeah. would be it. shaking long before it even got to them. Like mm-hmm. that would jerk anybody awake before mm-hmm. beforehand. Plus, Don's dad was very skeptical about where his son's rifle was found as it was lying next to the boys in the gravel. And he knew Don would never risk scratching the wood of his prize rifle. This was like a big deal for him. Mm-hmm. So if they were going to go take a nap, he would have like leaned it against something like everybody knows who owns guns that you don't just like throw your gun in the dirt. Like that's not good for it. You want to lean it up against something. So that was very odd to Curtis. So the families were absolutely convinced that Don Henry and Kevin Ives had been murdered prior to the train running over them. I mean, that would be 
the only thing to me that makes sense. There's no other scenario other no, than murder that there's not, would make this make sense. Absolutely not. And we will explain why we think that a little more after a word from our last sponsors. Okay, so jumping back into the case here, one thing that's really weird to note is that a week before the murders, there was a suspicious man in a military fatigue outfit seen walking along the train tracks. A Bryant Patrol police officer, Danny Allen, actually stopped the man to question him, and the man immediately pulled out his gun and started shooting at him. Damn. Isn't that crazy? And Danny ducked, and by the time he stood up, the man was just gone. So the Saline County Sheriff's Office responded within five minutes and searched the area. He was never found. And this man was spotted again the same night that the boys were killed. He was wearing the same military fatigues. He was walking away from the town along the tracks about 200 yards from where the bodies were hit. I can't even believe that. Like, they just didn't find him and he disappeared and then they didn't keep looking for him. They're like, like, whatever. If you shoot an officer, it's okay. Isn't that wild? You'd think there would be a manhunt, you know? There would be normally, but yeah, I guess back be. then they were like, well, better luck next time. That's scary. Seriously. How bad things were. God. But no one knows who this man was or what he was doing that night either. The families questioned a lot of the moves made by the police during the investigation as well. And people in the town started to talk a lot, you know, trying to figure out what had happened. Everyone was trying to kind of solve the case themselves. And eventually people started going to the crime scene, of course, to have their own look around. And this is so wild. But days after the boys were killed, a relative found a shoe that still had a foot in it at the crime scene. That's so traumatic. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the autopsy report from Dr. Malik didn't even mention a missing foot. So what the fuck? How do you not account for a missing foot in the medical examiner's report? Like, how do you not? That's just like not doing your job. No, that makes no sense. So the police officers at the scene also claimed that the green tarp never existed. They said that the men on the train spotted an optical illusion that made it look like the boys were covered in a tarp, their lower bodies, but it actually was never there. <laughs> like I would believe that like right? an optical illusion. What are you talking about? That's why there's been so much controversy over this tarp. They still got close to the bodies though. Like mm-hmm. maybe from afar that could fly, but you're running over them. So you're going to get close enough that you're going to be able to make right. out what is on them. Like clearly there was a tarp. So they're almost saying it's like a mirage. Like, you know, when you see water, yeah. when it's really hot, is that what they're trying to, this was I mean, I'd like to the see night, the science though. behind that claim, right? Yeah. It's the middle of the night. I mean, the train's going to have headlights. So maybe with mm. headlights, something like that could happen. I but yes, I feel like it's just bullshit because <laughs> they're just trying to make the argument that, they weren't dead when they were hit, that they died when yeah, they they're were trying hit. to fit the narrative of mm-hmm. this was an accident. They fell asleep smoking marijuana cigarettes. Yep. On the train tracks. Okay. Who the fuck believes this? How does this stuff happen? I don't understand. This is so messed up. So Larry and Linda Ives luckily were able to afford to hire a private investigator to help them try to make sense of this homicide. But the police kept throwing up roadblocks. Whenever the PI tried to get information or question the officers, no one would cooperate with him. Dr. Malik said it was an accidental death, which was the only explanation the police seemed willing to consider. Again, like medical examiners, I feel like have way too much mm. power over investigations. Like a good yeah. medical examiner probably should have done an undetermined yeah. designation for these guys. Like mm-hmm. they should have said, I can't prove yes or no. I mean, even though you probably can based on, you know, the what the witness has said, but mm. at least undetermined would at least leave that open for 
further investigation to just say, this is an accident. I'm putting that on my report. Cat's like case closed for the police. They're like, oh, perfect. Well, we don't have to work anymore on this case. We can close it and move on. And so clearly the reason why the family brought in the PI is so that they can try to gather enough evidence to have that overturned and a new investigation opened on in this case. And we have seen multiple other cases where the medical examiners have been swayed by the police or have been, you know, corrupted by the police or yeah, vice versa too. Um, So in February of 1988, all the parents got together and held a joint press conference. They wanted to put pressure on the police to reopen the case. So they decided to use the media. Which is always a smart idea. Yes. I mean, if you're not getting what you need from police or investigators or in the medical examiners, I mean, the best thing you can do is try to get the the media and the public's attention around your public. Yeah, that's huge. It's the more eyes behind you. Yeah. I don't think people necessarily realize that about true crime, how important it is to have these stories the out there. Is yeah, huge. it is. It's the, like a huge, huge factor. Solves a lot of cases too. Yeah, and it sometimes helps bring in other experts as well. Like mm-hmm. it'll get eyes on somebody out there mm-hmm. who might have the answers or might be able to help solve your case. And luckily for the families, Dr. James Garrett of San Antonio was actually recruited to give a second opinion on the medical examiner's report. And at the press conference, Dr. Garrett said that any amount of THC would not cause the boys to lose consciousness, slip into a coma, or even fall into a deep sleep, as Dr. Malik had claimed. He also explained that the only reliable test to find drugs in a person's system was called mass spectrometry, and this was a test that hadn't been done on either boy. A toxicologist from North Carolina, Dr. Arthur McBray, also called Dr. Malik's findings very bizarre, and he confirmed that no amount of THC would have caused Don and Kevin to lose consciousness, on the railroad tracks. And luckily for them, the press conference worked. And the very next day, the investigation was officially reopened, which is awesome and rarely happens that, you know, you do a press conference like this and the police are just like, all right, I guess we should take another look at it. Mm-hmm. But it was the, fairly quick. Yeah, it was very quick. And there was a new prosecutor, Prosecutor Richard Garrett. And he actually ordered that Kevin and Don's body be exhumed for a second autopsy. Not only that, they had well-respected Georgia medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Burton, perform the second autopsy, and he determined the boys had smoked one or two joints, maybe, based on you know the levels of THC, and nowhere near the 20 that you know Dr. Malik had said prior. Shocker. Dr. Burton also found evidence that one of the boys was dead when he was run over by the train, and the other was unconscious at that time. In July of 1988, a grand jury led by Dan Harmon heard the evidence and actually ruled on the case. Dan was actually friends with Prosecutor Richard Garrett, and he had talked to both families, acting as an advocate and volunteering to help them in any way that he could. He also requested that the judge appoint him as a special prosecutor in order to supervise the case, make sure no funny business happened like before, and make sure that no stone was left unturned. So with the case reopened, Richard started interviewing all the witnesses again. When he talked to the four men on the train, they all told him about that light green tarp covering the boys. But the police officers who searched the scene not only didn't find the tarp, apparently, but they also claimed that none of the men on the train had ever mentioned it to them. Neither of the boys or their families ever owned a light green tarp, so they were really confused. Richard was baffled. It didn't make any sense that the tarp would just disappear from the scene, and no one seemed to know where it even came from in the first place. Six weeks after the case was reopened, Richard discovered a case just like the one that he was investigating. And it took place in 1984 in Hodgin, Oklahoma, just 200 miles west of Little Rock. 
Two young men were killed in a very similar way on the railroad tracks. Their names were Billy Hainline and Dennis Decker, and they were lying on the tracks in almost identical positions to Kevin and Don. They were hit by an oncoming train, but no suspects were ever identified. Hmm. I mean, that seems mm-hmm. like there might be a connection there. Yep. So Richard started to realize that there might be more to this case than anyone else realized. He had never felt the need to carry a gun before, but during this investigation, he had his gun on him at all times. He believed his life could be in danger if he uncovered the truth. He also had another autopsy done on the boys, and there was a shocking discovery. And this is the type of crazy shit that you hear about. Don's shirt and body showed evidence of stab wounds that had just been missed by the medical examiner. What the fuck? He had been stabbed in the back with a sharp object. Kevin's skull had also been crushed. He was struck in the face and the back of the head with some type of blunt object and looks like he was hit with the butt of a rifle even. Yeah, which would make sense. I mean, Mm -hmm. the rifle was laying next to them, so absolutely could have got clubbed with that. Mm -hmm. And this medical examiner said that these injuries were inflicted before they were hit by the train. It's really wild that the fact that they could even like figure that out. Like how do you even begin to determine uh, a body's been, you know, had some sort of uh, blunt force impact to it prior to a train running over it. Yeah, it seems like a very difficult job. Yeah, yeah, seriously. In 1988, the grand jury ruled the cause of death of Don and Kevin as a probable homicide, reversing Dr. Malik's findings, which was huge for their family. And despite all of this, Dr. Malik withheld crucial documents and insisted that his report was accurate and that the boys were not murdered. Later, it was discovered that Dr. Malik had botched multiple cases in his career as a medical examiner, and he was also involved in multiple mm-hmm. cover-ups. Doesn't that scare you that these people can do that yeah and i mean it's obviously easier to do that in a small town like this versus yeah. like a big city but still i mean the fact it happens at all at any level I feel is like crazy you should have to have at least three medical examiners give an opinion and sign off on all reports there's there needs to be more like checks and balances right? in, in those types of positions i mm-hmm. feel like like mm-hmm. i'm sure there are but like in some of these places where you know limited budget yeah it's just kind of whoever you know, who's been running the show the longest and they're the ones who get to call the shots. It's crazy. One of Dr. Malik's examples of the shit he would pull was a patient died in the care of an anesthetist named Virginia Kelly. And she was already on thin ice facing negligence and malpractice charges in a different case. But Dr. Malik came to her rescue and altered documents to ensure she couldn't be implicated in that patient's death. That's a pretty big deal. Virginia Kelly was the mother of the current governor of Arkansas at the time, Bill Clinton. That's wild. Hmm. Very Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. And in 20 other cases, Dr. Malik's findings were highly questionable, if not outright lies. His testimonies were proved false and overruled by juries multiple times, and experts in the field constantly challenged his findings. In one case, he ruled death a suicide when a man had been shot in the chest five times. Oh, my God. In another case, he listed the cause of death as an ulcer on a man who had been cleanly decapitated, claiming the dog chewed his head off. That is so insane that people like this can fuck up multiple cases. Yeah. What? And not be reprimanded and not have anything happen. How does this stuff slide by? Yeah. And the murder suspect was never charged based on Dr. Malik's report, even though it was like very clear in this case. So Bill Clinton was questioned about Dr. Malik's mistakes, but he ended up defending And the governor said that he did excellent work. Really? What? Really, Bill? 
That's wild. Really, Bill. What's also crazy is that within two months of the grand jury ruling that Dr. Malik had botched the cause of death for both Don and Kevin, Bill Clinton requested a 41.5% raise for Dr. Malik. He believed the doctor's mistakes were because he was overworked and underpaid. Linda Ives and other victims affected by Dr. Malik's incompetence formed a group to protest this raise, and they called themselves Victims of Malik's Incredible Testimony, or shortened Vomit, which is perfect for Dr. Malik. Yeah, honestly, that's really fitting. Yeah, it really is. I like that. So there's also a conspiracy out there called the Clinton Body Count, and that ties Bill Clinton to a lot of different crime and corruption. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracies around the Clintons. Mm Mm-hmm. But this particular theory, yeah, they are, they're definitely a sketch. But again, this theory has almost no evidence to support it, but it's still something interesting to consider. And that's why we're bringing it up here. But this theory is that Bill Clinton had dozens of people killed who could implicate him in various crimes. And the deaths were under suspicious circumstances and the people could all be traced back to the Clintons in one way or another. It's kind of the basic explanation of this theory. Mm-hmm. But supposedly he had almost 50 advisors, colleagues, and private citizens quietly murdered to keep them from coming forward with incriminating evidence or from testifying. Linda Thompson, an Indianapolis lawyer, compiled this list in 1993, and she called it the Clinton body count, coincidence or the kiss of death. Obviously, she's not the most credible person out there, but she quit her practice in order to run a group that would further investigate these multiple conspiracy theories, including the Clinton body count. Linda claimed that these deaths may have been a way of controlling President Clinton, but she couldn't say who these people were or who these puppet masters were. The list was given legitimacy, though, by a conservative congressman named William Dannemeyer. In 1994, he sent a letter to congressional leaders that included 24 people connected to Bill Clinton, who mysteriously died, and asked them to hold hearings in order to hopefully get an investigation into this and get to the bottom of it. Also, this guy has advocated for quarantining people living with AIDS. He wanted to ban abortion. He opposed environmental protections and rejected the taxing the rich as a start. And he died in 2019. So definitely not a good dude. Kind of hard to take his word, you know? Yeah. I mean, both of these people, but it's interesting. I I get why this is important to bring up because Mm -hmm. I mean, you never know, right? Mm -hmm. We, we don't know, you know, if this is a hundred percent false or not. I mean, there's no evidence to make it a hundred percent true, but it is very interesting that there are people that, may have mysteriously died around bill clinton yeah and it wouldn't be totally shocking no it would not be (laughs) it would definitely wouldn't shock yeah most of us one of the theories that's out there revolving around the boys deaths is that perhaps Mm -hmm. either they were involved with some type of drug deal or perhaps they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and there was some sort of drug drop that happened near the railroad tracks Mm -hmm. while they happened to be there and they witnessed it and therefore they were murdered because they were witnesses to this drug drop. And I think that would make the most sense. I mean, personally, that's what I think happened here. Yeah, I know. Plus, Bright, Arkansas was known as a drug trafficking hub. Mm-hmm. There was actually a pilot by the name of Barry Seal who was contracted by the DEA to fly over Central American countries in a low-flying plane in order to take photos of a Colombian drug cartel. But soon he actually became a double agent and started working for the cartel, smuggling drugs into America. And this is a lot more common than people realize. It's still happening all the time. Yep. Um, He flew into small airports, and one of them was Mena Intermountain Municipal Airport, which is about 120 miles away from Bryant. And he would actually make drops from his plane into designated areas in Bryant. A confidential informant has actually confirmed this theory to be true that 
in fact, there was a field near the tracks where the mm-hmm. boys were killed that was an actual drop site. Yep. And the reason we know this is because this was actually in a police report that was filed seven months after the murders. Mm-hmm. And Barry Seal, this pilot we were talking about, had actually been assassinated by the Colombian drug cartel by the time the boys were killed. So we know he wasn't directly involved, but we do know that this drop system was in place at the time the boys were murdered. So it is very possible that this is indeed what happened to them. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. But it's also interesting to me that there is that similar case uh, in Hodgen mm-hmm. that two boys ended up dead on the tracks as well. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that was a drop site as well for drugs, Maybe. but I mean, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what are the chances? What are the chances? Yeah. Two groups like come across a drug. Right. Situation. I don't right. know. It's possible though, but I do get what you're saying. That kind of makes it a little more likely to be some type of killer that disposes of his bodies this way or think, you know, exactly ruins all the crime scene. Yeah, exactly. Even though this case was reopened and theories were presented, there just wasn't enough evidence to really pursue anything seriously. So this case went, went cold pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but a few years later after the murders, uh, witnesses started kind of coming out of the woodworks. And one of those witnesses was Tommy Nyehouse. And he was actually a 12 year old boy who claimed to witness the murders, but he didn't come forward until he was 18 years old. So six years. Yeah. Quite, six a time, years after. quite a while afterwards. Yeah. And he actually came forward and said that he was with a group of friends in the woods that night. And he said he saw a group of men on the tracks. He said Don and Kevin were nearby and turned around when they saw the men. But one of the men called them over. And when the boys hesitated, a shot was fired and they ran. He said the men chased after them and Tommy actually knew one of the men. It was his mother's boyfriend, Dan Harmon, the man who led the grand jury for the case and asked to be appointed special prosecutor. That's wild. That's crazy to think about. Mm Mm-hmm. After giving this statement, Tommy actually went on to pass polygraph tests and was deemed a credible witness, so much so that they put him into witness protection. I mean, if that doesn't tell you anything, yeah. I don't know what does. I mean, clearly, seems like a pretty credible eyewitness statement. I mean, Absolutely. he saw Dan Harmon, and Dan Harmon is pushing to be you know, a special prosecutor in this case. I mean, that's pretty, pretty fishy, if you ask me. Another one of the witnesses that came forward was one of the boy's friends, Keith Coney. And he actually given them a ride that night on his motorcycle in order to use a payphone at a nearby grocery store. And Keith actually died in a suspicious motorcycle accident a few months after his friends were killed. Mm. And the scene of the accident looked like he was actually being chased and that his throat may have been slit. There was no autopsy done on him because they said it was an accident. And we were able to actually confirm that all the boys were together that night in the parking lot because multiple witnesses reported seeing them that night. Mm-hmm. And a witness named Ronnie Goodwin came forward and he said that he saw the boys matching Don and Kevin's descriptions in the parking lot and they were being harassed by two police officers. The officers started beating the boys and hit one of them in the face with a butt of a rifle, which makes a lot of sense. They then threw the boys into a truck. It wasn't marked, but Ronnie knew it was a police vehicle. Two more witnesses confirming this story were later called as witnesses in another grand jury hearing, but both of them were murdered before they could even testify. That's so crazy. Isn't that? Just one thing after another. corrupt shit. And then in 1993, Charlene Wilson came forward giving a secret testimony on video. And in 1987, she was dating Dan Harmon. So she knew the tea on him. Yeah, she definitely spilled the tea. She said that she was actually there the night that Don and Kevin were killed. She was supposed to get the drug drop, but she had done cocaine and meth and couldn't. 
and Dan told her just to wait in the car. He was with two police officers and Keith McCaskill, who was a local drug dealer and a police informant. A previous drug drop had disappeared and Dan believed it was stolen by kids, and they were there that night to make sure nothing was wrong when the next drug dropped. They're expecting to receive three to four pounds of cocaine and five pounds of marijuana. And again, this is all according to Charlene. Mm -hmm. And from the car, she saw a kid running through the woods. And when she got out, she saw two or three boys with a group of men. She thought one of them got away, likely Keith Coney, who had given Don and Kevin a ride to the store. The men interrogated the boys and then handcuffed their hands behind their back and made them lie face down on the ground. They then proceeded to kick them and beat them, demanding answers eventually killing them so scary i can't imagine how terrifying something like that would be seriously charlene said they got the drugs put the boys in the trunk and drove a little way down the track they wrapped the boys in a green tarp and then left them there there it is green tarp yep charlene confirmed and at this point she's just freaking out because she just witnessed murder Mm -hmm. and so she jumped out of the car and ran away in another testimony she said dan had pressured her to use her own knife to stab one of the boys Dan Harmon was in charge of the new grand jury as well, and he used his position to get information on the case in order to gain access to secret documents to find out who knew he was involved. I mean, Mm -hmm. there you go. That makes a lot of sense. He called anyone with any involvement to testify and treated them like suspects. In the future, if anyone implicated him, he would say it was retaliation for the grand jury. So he's basically covering Mm -hmm. his his ass while accusing everybody else under Mm -hmm. the sun. Keith McCaskill, that local meth dealer and police informant, was also on the tracks that night. He was called to testify before the grand jury, and he had said that he was afraid for his life because he knew something about the railroad track thing. He had given information about the case to Richard Garrett, and he knew he'd be killed for it. Keith told his friends and family goodbye and planned his own funeral. It's crazy. Keith was murdered on November 10th, 1988, and he was stabbed 113 times by Ronald Shane Smith. Imagine just knowing that's coming. That's so fucking scary. A fellow inmate claimed that Ronald had been paid $4,000 to kill Keith. He was found guilty in August of 1989 and sentenced to 10 years in prison. I mean, clearly based off of that, there, mm-hmm. there's clearly a hit put out for Keith McCaskill because he was witness to, you know, people involved in law enforcement, in the prosecutor's office, mm-hmm. in the murders of Don and Kevin. That's why so many people don't come forward when they have information like this. That's really crazy to think about and how many other instances of corruption like this are out there in small towns in America. So many people that have just been in there for a long time. Yep. Yep. So the new grand jury ended up ruling the cause of death for Don and Kevin to be a definite homicide. Dan Harmon did eventually find out that his ex-girlfriend Charlene Wilson had given secret testimony implicating him and he did not like this. He set her up on a drug charge and arrested her himself. And he was the prosecutor on the fucking case. That's crazy. Isn't that Only insane? in a small town like that. Right? It was her first drug offense. And he offered her a plea deal of 116 years. How can that happen? That's such a conflict of interest. all the time. God. It's crazy. She refused to take the deal and was sentenced to 31 years in prison. On your first drug charge. Yep. Wow. Dan Harmon also took down Jean Duffy, the federal narcotics investigator. And when she started the job in the 90s, she was told not to look into any drug charges involving allies. But soon she started to figure out that Dan Harmon was dirty and involved in the deaths of Don and Kevin. And of course, he retaliated against her by accusing her of all kinds of crimes, from embezzlement to child abuse. And the newspaper printed anything he said. Dan tried to subpoena her and get the names of her informants, but she refused and she realized that she could be sent to jail. 
One of her informants said that they'd kill her in jail. So she was how scary. Man. Yeah. Imagine how scared you'd be just trying to do your job. And these dirty cops are yeah. going to end up getting you killed. It's just crazy. She was soon fired from her job and five people in her department also quit in protest with her. She feared for her life and went into hiding. So one of the most recent bits of information that came out on this case was in January of 2018. A man by the name Billy Jack Haynes, who was a former wrestler and very popular in the 1980s, he was like a professional wrestler Mm -hmm. like WWE, WWF, came forward as a witness and an accomplice in the murders of Don and Kevin. After sitting on all this information and dirt that he knew about Bryant, Arkansas, he finally felt compelled and, you know, he wanted to do the right thing. And so he started talking about Bryant, talking about how it was a well-known drug drop and said someone had been stealing either money or drugs worth up to $4 million dollars. And there was an open field near the tracks where the drop would happen every two to four weeks. And at the time, Billy was very involved in drug trafficking and he knew all about what was going on in Salem County. He claimed he was hired by a corrupt politician to stake out the site and kill whoever it was, whoever was stealing their drugs. So Billy went to the spot on the night of August 23rd, right after a wrestling match in Detroit. And he was wearing a mask and gloves and planned to kill whoever these thieves were with his bare hands. He suspected the police were involved, but he didn't know if it was criminals or cops. And at the time, he didn't care. He claimed he would have done it no matter who it was. And he's as good as guilty of murder. But he was also an accomplice to murder. He said he was at the drop site when it landed and there were two cops that he was ready to kill. But before he got the chance, two kids walked up and they saw the cops and then ran. And these cops ran after the boys. And after a short time, they came back carrying the boys' limp bodies over their shoulders. They were then handcuffed and beaten with flashlights. It was a dark night, but he could see that there was blood everywhere. One of the kids was already dead, but one was still alive. And they said that he couldn't risk leaving any witnesses. So one of the cops used the kid's hunting rifle to bash him in the head, Mm. splitting his skull open. So scary. They then removed the handcuffs and threw the boys onto the tracks about 100 feet from the drop site. Billy had met the officers before, actually, and they were starstruck when they saw him recognizing him from his professional wrestling career. He also recognized one of the cops. It was none other than Saline County Sheriff James Steed Jr. James had refused funds to help the investigation and lied about where he sent evidence. Linda Ives has publicly criticized his handling of her son's case. Billy didn't know if the cops were there to catch the thief or if they were the thieves themselves. The cops were heavily armed at the time, so he didn't want to you know, go against what they were telling him to do but they told him to go up on the tracks and arrange the bodies for them. It was at this point that the boys were covered with a green tarp to help conceal them from the engineer. As they knew a train was coming by around 4.30 a.m. and would take care of all the evidence. Apparently, Billy was paid $50,000 for this job. He had been hired before to break people's legs or to kill people even, and he claims an unnamed politician hired him in 1984 to kill David Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy's son. It's wild. I mean, whether or not that's true, we may never know. Mm, I bet it is. Maybe. Alleged. A part of coming forward with this information was actually speaking to Linda Ives a few times in 2016. He actually gave her the names of everyone he knew was involved to pass along to her private investigator. And obviously coming out, I mean, he actually did some interviews on YouTube. And again, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I Mm -hmm. fully believe all this or not. I think it's kind of... It seems possible for sure, but it just seems also like a little too convenient to have all these details and sit on them for so long when something as serious as kids 
kids dying, you know, or being killed. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. It's tough. It's very tough. So the investigation into the deaths of Don and Kevin were officially closed in 1995. In 1996, Linda Ives released Obstruction of Justice, which is a video about the incompetent investigation and the alleged police cover-up of officers involved in drug trafficking in Saline County. Which was a very real thing, I think. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure as you're listening to this, you're like, what about Dan Harmon? I mean, Mm -hmm. clearly this guy was involved. He's doing all sorts of criminal activities. Mm -hmm. And finally, all these crimes did catch up to him in 1997. He was indicted at that time with racketeering, dealing in cocaine, manufacturing of methamphetamine, extortion, witness tampering, and retaliating against an informant. He ended up being convicted on five counts of racketeering, three extortion conspiracies, and one marijuana distribution charge, and sentenced to only eight years in prison. Wow. He ended up only serving nine years before being released, so he's already out of prison. And after a six-month drug investigation in 2010, he was arrested again for selling morphine and hydrocodone near a school. He was eventually acquitted. That's crazy. This, guy this guy's just like above the law. Apparently. Major white privilege here. Prosecutor Richard Garrett stayed committed to discovering the truth of the murders until he died on October 23rd, 2018. He was 72 years old, but he truly cared about the case and he wanted answers for the family so bad. Kevin and Don's families believe that the boys were murdered, of course, and they're not giving up, but they're still not getting the answers that they want or cooperation from the police to this day. Because there's major cover-ups, man. Yep. They don't want to go through all that. Mm -mm. And get this, the new Saline County Sheriff eventually became Rodney Wright, who is Dan Harmon's nephew. So it's not going to get better. No. In 2016, Linda Ives filed a suit against the CIA, the FBI, and the Bryant Police Department for violating the Federal Freedom of Information Act. And a federal judge ended up dismissing the case, which is is wild. Like, how far up does this corruption go? I know. And unfortunately, this is years and years later. So it's only going to get harder and harder. And even Dr. Malik Mm -hmm. has passed. He died in 2018. And still to this day, no suspects were ever charged for the murders of Don. And Kevin, sadly. And that's it. That's all the information there is. What do you think happened? I mean, I'm sure people can guess at this point what we think happened. But I I mean, Dan Harmon was clearly a, was in on drug trafficking. The boys saw it and they murdered him. Yeah. Murdered them. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we've we've seen similar situations mm-hmm. like this firsthand mm-hmm. uh, pretty much. And, you know, we know that this kind of corruption does exist in oh, small yeah. town America, especially. So it's interesting how they just get rid of evidence, too. You yeah, know, that green tarp. Who knows where the fuck that went? Yeah. I mean, there's unfortunately in this case, there's like nothing you can even do. No. I mean, there's nobody that's going to actually open the case or reinvestigate. I mean, they need like a full scale investigation of this police department. And, they do. And all of the sheriff's deputies and everybody involved at the time. But yeah. again, so much time has passed since this has happened that most of these people are dead. Mm-hmm. So there's not. I mean, unfortunately, I, I don't know that this family or both of their families will ever re- get the justice they they deserve. Yeah, sadly, that's just reality for so many cases out there because they're just too much time has passed and there's only so much you can do. It complicates it so much every year that goes by. gets a little trickier and trickier. Yeah, all I know is that they definitely did not die by accident from marijuana or anything like that. Oh my God. That was just such a bunch of bullshit that Dr. Malik put forward. I feel like you'd only get away with saying something like that in the 80s because that's just, what the fuck? Fuck, I mean, that's so out of the realm of possibility. It's like insane. Seriously, seriously. So well, let us know what you guys think. 
If you have any other theories, feel free to drop them in the comments or send us a tweet, something like that. Let us know your thoughts on this case because it is an interesting one and I'm sure you will have some ideas. But that's it for this episode of the Mile Heart Podcast. Hopefully you thought it was interesting and intriguing as much as we did, but we will see you guys next week. Yes, we will. Until then, stay safe and stay woke.